Welcome, friends, to episode 16 of our podcast, Adventures in the Art of Lively Conversation. Gary Zabinski, your host here, and I am so very, very happy to have back in the co-pilot chair, the hearty to my laurel, world traveler, international <laughs> man of mystery, my good friend and sidekick, Roscoe. How have your travels been going, Roscoe, and uh, welcome back. Well, thank you. I feel like it's been a long time since we've been in front of these microphones facing each other in our downtown Evanston studios. We missed you immensely during our last podcast with Grammy-winning uh, jazz singer Kurt Elling, though your name was invoked repeatedly well, throughout the episode. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. I was in Los Angeles, and I was at Cinecon, and I saw a bunch of friends, and I had a great time. Fantastic. We're going to get to that, because right. I want to hear a little bit more of the details about your travels. And I have to, to do some... Um, you have to fall on your sword a little I have to bit. fall on my sword a little, make some corrections. All right. Well, I've got the sword here, right. and I'm ready for you to fall on it in just a minute. We have a little housekeeping thing to take care of. You know, we get a lot of feedback from our listeners, and we also get feedback from our friends and colleagues um, who are interested in the podcast. And one of the things that has come up is that the name of our podcast, Talk Sports, which is has always been meant to be ironic in some way, that we are in the business of the sport of talk, the sport of conversation. That was how we were billed to begin with. And that's sort of what we've been going with. Wouldn't you agree that that's been our our, our modus operandi? Well, I, I think so. Yeah, well, apparently, irony doesn't play that well on the internet. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, we've confused a lot of people thinking that it's a sports show or it's a talk sport talk show about sports, and they've had difficulty finding us. So we've made a decision, and it was not easy to come by, but we've made the decision to rebrand ourselves. Now, you'll still be able to find all our old episodes. You'll still be able to catch up on everything that we've done up until this time. But as of very, very soon, and including this podcast that we're doing right now, we've come up with a new name. You want to be able to tell the listeners what our new name is, Roscoe? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're tuned into Booth One, an hour of lively conversation with your friends Gary Zabinski and Roscoe. Now, Booth One is the name that we've chosen, and it was selected uh, pretty much by a poll of our listeners and our friends. Booth One is related to the fact that Booth One was the most coveted, sought-after, and first-class seating placement at the Ambassador East's Pump Room here in Chicago. Now, it's still called the Pump Room. The Ambassador East has fallen by the wayside. But Booth One is the most sought-after seat in the house, as those celebrities sitting there could be seen from the lobby, the bar, and the rest of the room. It's a place to be seen and to see. And uh, we are in the business of trying to find Booth One experiences for ourselves. Wouldn't you say, well, I, Yes, and I think my life has been all about Booth One experiences. Or chasing is, them. Or chasing them, which is why, you know, why we came to do this uh, podcast so that we could talk about, well, so that I could talk about the, <laughs> the, the unending privilege and abundance and Booth One experiences that is my life. Would that be like front row at the circus? Front row at the circus, 
booth one at the pump room, uh, meeting the actors or stars of a particular show backstage or at a cocktail party afterwards, having them on our show, for instance, a Kurt Elling uh, experience, a Kurt Elling interview. So as of now, our show is now called Booth One, and it can be found uh, on the internet at booth-one, that's B-O-O-T-H-O-N-E, Dot com. You, again, you'll be able to find all our past episodes, including uh, this one and the Kurt Elling episode and all the ones that we've done up till this point. Can we, can we try it again? I, I want to hear you say it. Booth One. I like that, Booth One. Booth One. It rolls off the tongue, and it really does describe our show very, very well. It describes exactly what we're trying to do. And it's a great way to get into segments, I can, because I can say to you, Gary, you know, last night I was sitting in Booth One, and... It's how we begin every conversation. Without question. And I think it's going to be much more easily recognized and memorable to our listeners and easy to search for. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you look up Booth One, if you give it a Google search, all you'll find is actually a picture of the original Booth One at the pump room. Now, just imagine Roscoe and I sitting in those seats doing a podcast. And there you have the concept. That's exactly what we're and, going and to do. And didn't, didn't you tell me that the original Booth One is now on display at Second City. Is that right? It is. It's up on the fourth floor, I believe, in that sort of smaller cabaret theater space that one of the few spaces that did not burn down recently. Yes. Uh, they've reopened the theater spaces the other day uh, after having a tragic fire which destroyed their offices. But yes, the booth one, the original booth one with, with a vintage telephone and the little lamp and all of that is up in the second city. Roscoe, you, you have a phone call. The maitre d' would say to me back in the day, and then he'd bring the phone to booth one and plug it in. And It'd be Lana Turner. It would be Lana Turner. Calling from across the restaurant. <laughs> yes. Please stop over in booth 13, but I'm dying to talk to you. <laughs> Who do we have to thank for the expression booth one being part of our, for always using the expression booth one? Who brought that to us? I believe our producer. I was going to say our friend George in Midlothian. Well, and it, it harkens back to once upon a time I was unemployed and said, well, I'm unemployed. I have no money, but I have a credit card with a $20,000 line of credit. So I think I'll go to New York and see a bunch of Broadway shows and stay in a nice hotel. And then later I'll figure out how to pay the bill. So I think I, I think this was, you know, when I saw Guys and Dolls with Nathan Lane and I explained that I had lucked into a house seat at the last minute. And George said, you know, it's always booth one for you, isn't it? Rich or poor, employed or unemployed, living on welfare, you're always in booth one. And and to be clear, we're not always describing the most expensive experience or the most luxurious experience. We're looking for a a full access experience, one where we can get as close as possible to the real action, the, the, the real scene that we might even be examining. And of course, it also leaves us open to discussing many other issues like the political scene or... Uh, the art world or the dance world, and we still have room for many other segments. But from now on, we're called Welcome to Booth One. I like it. I do, too. I do, too. Now, did you watch the GOP debate the other night? I watched very little of it. Well, it was three hours and 15 minutes long. Unbelievable. Leads us to my ongoing segment called Keys to the Carly. 
And boy, couldn't, you can imagine how overwhelmed and elated I was that not only did Carly Fiorina get invited as one of the main people, she was not in the losers group this time, she was right there on stage with the other 10, so I guess there were 11. Uh, not only that, but she killed it. Did she? She, she, she nailed it. In fact, uh, it went around the internet that she had quite a number of drop-the-mic moments. Now, you know what a drop-the-mic no, moment is. No, what does that is. mean? Well, it's, it's, it refers to a show business action where it's the, the action performed after getting the better of someone or calling someone out so hard that you just walk away indisputably victorious. You know, when a performer or a speaker intentionally drops or throws the microphone to the floor, you know, they'll say something like, and that's the fact. <laughs> they drop yeah. the mic on yeah. the floor and they walk off stage. Because they have triumphed. Because they have triumphed after an awesome performance. And the, the performance was so awesome, there's nothing, nothing more to say. Well, she had several of those moments. And one of them uh, that I wanted to just uh, talk about very briefly was, many of them were addressed at Donald Trump, of course. And she said, you know, it's interesting to me. Mr. Trump said that he heard Mr. Bush very clearly. This was about some woman's issue they were talking about. What Mr. Very clearly and heard very clearly what Mr. Bush said. But I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said. She drops the mic yes. and walks off stage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of them. Uh, I, I went from secretary to CEO, she said at one point. Oh, that, that's a great soundbite. Mr. Trump is a wonderful entertainer, she mentioned at another point. So she did very, very well, and you can imagine how my heart soared at, at her performance. Now, you might think that uh, I'm of the GOP persuasion, and maybe that's true, and maybe that's not true. I'm of the Carly Fiorina persuasion. That's all. That's all you can really you glean. You got quite from a thing this. for her. I got quite a thing, and I, I, I now now that and she's going to be like a starship captain someday. <laughs> the uniform yes. she wears. <laughs> we should take bets on how many more episodes we'll record in which we're able to have a keys to the Carly. She's no experience whatsoever in politics, in government. N you, you might as well run for president. Uh, you have the same credentials. Without question. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump has the same credentials. No experience in the political world in governing, except they're both trying to parlay their business acumen into the fact that I'm a businessman and government should be run like a business. Well, that's like saying show should be run like a business. But there's no business like show business. You can't run it that way. You've got to, it, there's, some, there's variances and nuances, and unless you've been in it and inside that battle, you really don't know how it goes. And so I, 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 I fear for, for Carly. I, I don't think that her business background is really going to carry her through to that. You feel protective of her. It's kind of sweet. As if she were a spinster aunt. Oh, <laughs> I thought you wanted her to be a little bit more than that. Know what I mean? Something wrong with your mouth there? <laughs> <laughs> No, I thought no. you had amorous feelings. None that, whatsoever. That's what I, was I, I, I find her physically unattractive uh, in 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 all ways. That said, uh, I do want to see her do well against this passel of buffoons. 
Certainly, I don't want her to be president. I vote for another persuasion altogether. But it's very exciting to see her it's doing, very doing well, and I can't wait to see what happens next. So let's get back now to your travels, and I want right. to touch back on this. I have the sword here. Let me pull out the sword um, that you need to fall on. You went to Cinecon, the silent film festival in Los Angeles, which you've been doing low these many 25 or 30 years. 19. 19, 25, 30, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> when you're your age, 19 you know, means WC, nothing anymore. W.C. Fields used to say, he said, I'd rather have two girls at 21 each than one girl at 42. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, here's the issue. We Last time we recorded, I spoke at length about Cinecon and what I was looking forward to, and I got an amazing number of things wrong. We were, we were all excited about a movie called uh, Two-Fisted, which I described as a Western. It wasn't a Western. It was a boxing movie. I told a story about Jack Mulhall and his wife drowning in the Pacific. I had the wrong actor. Uh, part of this, part of the issue, and I misdescribed the plots of several movies, and part of this is I looked at a schedule which links to the Internet Movie Database, which often has the burden of trying to describe a movie that no one has seen. So the entries are just wrong and, and, or, and or misleading. So almost everything I said about Cinecon was wrong, except that it's a group of about 400 people who gather to sit and watch movies in the dark for five days on Labor Day weekend. And it is always one of the high points of my year. And it's, it's always so much fun and so entertaining. Tell me about Merton Gert. You went on about that movie for Mert, a while. Mert and, and Marge. Mert and Marge, sorry. Mert and Marge. This was something else I got wrong. I thought that Mert and Marge was a f- popular radio show, which had a very long run in the 30s and 40s. I thought it was about a married couple. It's not. I thought it was a comedy. It's not. It's a soap opera, and it's about a mother and daughter working in show business in New York City. And this was also the movie that featured a blatantly gay character. This is a movie made in the, in the 30s. You didn't have bla- early 30s. You, didn't have, you, you did have blatantly gay characters in the movies up till 1933. These are movies that no one sees anymore. What was really interesting is a man who was the expert on, an expert on the Three Stooges, who I, who I loathe and detest and don't find a bit funny, got up to speak before the movie, and he said... And this is a movie in which the Three Stooges appear before they were known as the Three Stooges. There was actually a... Did you know this? That for a brief period, they tried out having a fourth stooge who was a female who was only loosely connected to the other three. And she appears in this movie. She's not billed. She she sort of walks through the movie as if she's on Thorazine. (laughs) And, And she's just a bizarre screen presence. Anyway, the expert, whose name I don't know, got up and spoke about the Three Stooges, and he said, so you're, so set up the talking about the film and the gay character and the soap opera, and he said, this is a film that, that virtually no one has seen for decades. So you're going to see a film that, that rabid Three Stooges fans have always coveted seeing, and this was a brand new print. It was beautiful, it was sparkling, and, and somehow through the magic of what they can do now, the soundtrack was perfect and pristine. And it was a, an extremely entertaining film, and little bits of, of naughtiness in it. One of, the, one of the characters gets into it with one of the Koreans, and he says, you know, the next time I see you, 
I'm going to have some mistletoe. I'm going to have that mistletoe pinned to the back of my pants. <laughs> wow. And we thought, oh, my gosh. That, you, can't, you can't say that. Oh, my gosh. And, and with the gay character, at one point, the, the chorus is leaving the stage, and all the chorus girls are handing him their, their costumes, their dresses that they've just taken off. And he hands it to one woman, and they exchange looks, and she goes, please fold it up and put it in the trunk, and don't put it on yourself. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, she's talking about a Maureen address in 1933. <laughs> who, would, who would think of a line like that, yeah. and why? <laughs> Just don't try it on, I think is what she said. So uh, thank you for those corrections. I'm sure some of our listeners quickly went to the Internet to see if your uh, descriptions of things from last time, well, two episodes ago, were accurate. And uh, I, I haven't received any hate mail yet claiming uh, that they were not. So people were probably taking you at, at face value right. and thinking that you were uh, the expert. And why would you be wrong? So I applaud your courage and uh, your uh, uh, honesty in standing up for saying, yep, I was wrong about that. That was not the film I uh, thought it was going to be. So what, what was your favorite film or one or two of your favorite films of the entire well, I'll, I'll just name a couple so we don't need to, to belabor this. And I have to say, part of, part of the fun of this is that you're sitting watching a movie that you're having a shared experience with other people who love film as much as I do. And we know that many of these films, we're going, this is the one and only time we will ever see them. And then after this screening, they're going to end up sitting in a vault again for 20 or 30 years. And so it's a unique opportunity. If I don't see the film at this screening, I will never see this film. So one of them was a film which I talked about before called Laughing at Trouble, starring Jane Darwell of, of Ma Jode fame. Sure, yes. And it's a, a comedy. The setup is that um, her, her daughter's boyfriend has been accused of a murder that he didn't commit, and they're hiding him at the, their house out on the outskirts of town. And Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch of the West, has a key role in the movie, and she's, she's hard of hearing, so every time anything happens, what? What are you saying? And she, her, they're both delightful, and this is the only film of which I'm aware in which Jane Darwell has the leading role and carries the entire film on her shoulders. And it's fast-paced, it's funny, it's exciting, it's romantic. It's all of 65 minutes long. Mm. And this was a film that when it was released was probably the second half of a double bill and probably was not reviewed in major newspapers, probably played at theaters for no more than mm. a week or so, and then went in the vault and no one saw it until we saw it this week. Uh, so that was one of the great films. They showed a Nancy Carroll film uh, on one of the very last days. Do you, do you know Nancy Carroll? I don't. Nancy, it was called I Love That Man, 1933, Edmund Lowe and Nancy Carroll. Nancy Carroll had been a Broadway Corrine who could, who could sing and talk. And so at the very beginning of sound films, she was brought to Hollywood. She was as beautiful as a woman could possibly be. It's known that the Museum of Modern Art has a copy of this film, a nitrate copy, meaning it could dissolve any minute and it is not scheduled for restoration. So this was outdated. It, it Now, of course, because I saw it, it has been restored and saved. It looks like it was filmed yesterday. Nancy Carroll could not be more beautiful. You just, boy, it's, it's a movie where you see a, a beautiful actress and you just fall in love with her because she seems mm. like the sweetest person in the world. Mm. Uh, final note on Nancy Carroll. She was very young when she was famous, and she was apparently uh, nasty 
and, and evil and mean to people. And it, she explained later, it's, she said, I was a young girl and all of a sudden I'm a movie star and I didn't know how to behave and I didn't know any better. So she was very popular and she was so difficult to work with that when her contract up, was up, the studio said, goodbye, get lost. And she said, I went from getting 20,000 fan letters a week to standing in line at a soup kitchen a year later. Oh, dear. Because she dithered away all of her money. Wow. Did, so, you, did you see any movies starring Paul Kelly while yes. you were out there? Yes, this was fantastic, too. It was a, another movie that no one had seen for years, Song and Dance Man, which uh, was based on a Broadway musical, and Paul Kelly was the lead. He was the Song and Dance Man. And Paul Kelly has the distinction of being the only movie star of, which I'm, of whom I'm aware, aware who is also a convicted murderer. <laughs> and in the 1920s, he had a girlfriend who unfortunately was married and he got into a fistfight with a woman's husband and the husband died of a brain hemorrhage. So Paul Kelly spent two years in San Quentin for manslaughter. Oh my. Then got out, married the woman whose husband he had killed and they went to Broadway as a double bill. (laughs) (laughs) Just like in Chicago. Yes, you've read about them in the newspapers now. See them on the Broadway stage. Convicted murderers. The madam and the murderer. The madam and the murderer. (laughs) Featuring in song, dance, and comedy for your entertaining. Three shows a day. Three shows a day. (laughs) Lines around the block. I'm so glad you went and I'm always thrilled when you're back and tell us stories about what you've seen. Uh, I'm not an aficionado of the silent film genre, but I do appreciate your descriptions and stories and and I do appreciate the history of them. Yeah, let me correct you on one thing. You you, you describe this as a silent film festival. It's not. Only only 11 of the films were silent. Really? There were about 20 full-length talkies. People like to say that it's a silent film festival. Like, my, my friends at work love to tease but me But technically, about that. it's technically not. Technically, it's not. And can, I, can I just give you one final observation about one of the things I find interesting about Certainly. this? Certainly. You know, if you get lost in the movie and the movie isn't interesting, it's always interesting to look at the sets and costumes and see how people lived and what things looked like in their kitchen, what the stove was like. So something that happens, and I, I guess this is the way America looked, in almost, in many, many, many films that I've seen that were made in the teens and the 20s, it's very common for people to have in their living room a photograph or a picture of Abraham Lincoln. And that's just something that a lot of Americans had in their house at that time. Abraham Lincoln, not, not George Washington, but Abraham Lincoln. If you think about it, at that time, Abraham Lincoln had, had only been dead for 50 years or so. Right. And right. One, one of the films they showed as well was made in 1915. It was one film in a series of films which were made to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was still considered a recent martyr for our country, mm-hmm. um, at least in the North. Yeah, at least in the North. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you're seeing a lot of Southern films with Abraham Lincoln <laughs> no, on the wall. No. Maybe not. Well, fascinating. Uh, I, I, I stand corrected about the silent part. From now on, it is the Cinecon Film Festival, and uh, I look forward to you going again next year. I'm right. sure uh, I'm sure you'll, uh, God willing, and the crick don't rise and your health holds up, you, you'll be there again. I will be. Listen, it's that time of year 
when theatrical seasons are beginning, not just on Broadway, but regionally here in Chicago, uh, many, many theater companies are having their first productions during September. I thought we'd catch up on a little preview of what's going on around the nation and around our fair city here uh, of Chicago and talk a little bit about what's out there on the boards. Now, I came across something and I knew about this peripherally, but now I've actually seen it in print. Do you know what they're doing at the uh, Huntington uh, Playhouse in Boston? No, I have no idea. Confederacy of Dunces. No! Which I realize is one of your favorite books. Oh, my Lord. Nick Offerman uh, is doing it. Nick Offerman of uh, Parks and Recreation fame, uh, husband of uh, Megan Mullally and, okay. and local Chicago guy, is is playing Ignatius J. Riley in this. Really? Now, I don't know very much of the details, but it does open very soon. Oh, boy. But I thought you'd be excited about I, that. I am excited, and they have been trying to bring that book to the screen or to the stage for for decades you know at one point john candy was announced to star in a film version of confederacy of dunces well i think if you're if you have some time to travel it might be worth your while to go to boston and see if you can't get a ticket for this thing and have a have a look at it you'd be one of the few people to see it out of town and it's in its tryout or well oh, out of town boy, makes me nervous makes me nervous hard thing to pull off yes all right uh, what else do you have another thing that's coming to broadway this season dames at sea is being yes. done. Now, Dames at Sea has never been done on Broadway. It was done off-Broadway off in 1966, starring a very young and very appealing... Bernadette Peters. Indeed. I, I, I'm shocked that with all the kinds of revivals of these types of shows that have gone on over the years, that this show has never actually been done or tried to, be, tried to have been done as a Broadway musical. What do you think about this? I'm having issues with this, and, and I'll, t I'll tell you why. The whole point of Dames at Sea was to do a parody of Busby Berkeley musicals that had, you know, 150 platinum blondes in negligee singing and dancing. And yes. this was to take what had been a huge movie musical and miniaturize it, doing it with a cast as small as possible, meant to be done on a tiny little stage. So... I'm not sure what the point is of blowing this up into a bigger musical, because that's not the point. But I am excited about the fact that it's at least being done. Right. Trying right. to be done. I think Bernadette Peters was 18 when she was in the original production. Must have. 1966. She's a Are you sure it's 66 and not 68? I'm pretty sure it's 1966. Um, I, I, I can look that up right. afterwards and issue a correction, but I'm pretty sure. Maybe we should just devote a half an hour per show to corrections. Maybe we ought to do a whole podcast of corrections. <laughs> of corrections. Welcome to Podcast 20. This yes. is our correction yes. show where we correct everything we got wrong in the past 10. Yeah, every 10th show we'll do a it, correction is, show. Is Dames at Sea at the Helen Hayes Theater? It is at the Helen Hayes. Sweep your glooms away. Dazzling dances, spectacular songs. Setting sale September 24th. So September 24th they start previews. Uh, another show that's opening very soon, in fact, it's going into previews, I think, uh, October 10th, is this, and I wish George, our friend George from Midlothian, were here to comment on this. Uh, it's uh, the Olivier Award-winning play from uh, Great Britain that's being brought over called King Charles III. Have you heard about this? I have not. It is the fictionalized story of 
Queen Elizabeth has died and King Charles has ascended to the throne. And what happens as King Charles III begins his reign at, what is he now, 70, almost oh, 70? I think yeah. so. And uh, I, hear it's, I hear it's fantastically well done, very entertaining, uh, very thought-provoking. Uh, I hear it's fantastic. I'm going to try to go see it if I can. Uh, there's a new David Mamet show called China Doll that's opening that he's written for his pal Al Pacino. Uh, haven't uh, heard whether haven't heard it much advanced word on it. It didn't open out of town anywhere, and they're not having a tryout. I'll, I'll give you my advanced word. I'm sure you will. I loathe David Mamet almost as much as I loathe Al Pacino. I've never get forgiven him for The Godfather Three, <laughs> in which Michael Corleone. Quiet, sullen, keeps to himself, introverted Michael Corleone suddenly became a giant piece of ham on screen. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a disastrous performance. Yes, it, it, it is. And he's, he's the father of a of a daughter who can't act her way out of a paper bag. Yes, and then is gunned down, much to everyone's everyone's delight. I believe there was applause at that point when I saw yes. the film. What else right. is playing? Oh, so the the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Well, I should say semi musical that's opening this season. School of Rock, based on the movie School of Rock, awesome movie with uh, uh, Jack Black. Some of the music is original by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Some of the music is music from the film itself, which is uh, of the popular rock genre. Uh, that that should have uh, a quite a good stir around it. If it's successful, it will be a huge, huge success. Lots of kids love that movie, and it would be a great family entertainment type movie to go to. I have some behind-the-scenes news about another important show coming to New York, The Gin Game. And you've seen The Gin Game. It's about two elderly people living in a nursing a nursing home, a not quite retirement a retirement home. home made famous by Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin. Hume Cronin. She won the uh, Tony Award for her performance for Best Actress thirty years ago in the original production, and it's about it's the gin game. So it's about an elderly couple who sit and play gin all day long. Much of the dialogue is timed to them getting winning hands, losing hands, being beaten. They started rehearsals, and no one thought about this going into the production. Neither James Earl Jones nor Cicely Tyson are card players. They, they, don't, know, they don't know how to play gin. They, they don't know how to play gin. It didn't mean anything to them. And she's 90 and he's well into his 80s. So they had to sort of change the rehearsal schedule to spend a significant amount of time getting up, up to speed on how to read cards, what, what's the difference between a black card and a red card, and how to play gin. See, and, this is the problem with casting stars. You don't get to ask those questions at the audition. Right. Because James Earl Jones did not show up to yes. audition. You know, otherwise, they'd say, uh, yes, you have any special skills? Oh, and by the way, do you play gin? Yeah. You know, yeah. I know you've won a special Academy Award and a couple of Tony Awards, but do you know how to play cards? Exactly. <laughs> be, be like Casting some guys in a play called Badminton, and no one knew how to play. Yes. What's a shuttlecock? What? what? <laughs> I have to hit it over that net? I sound like George. <laughs> Last but not least, the uh, much-anticipated adaptation of Stephen King's novel and the film Misery, starring Laurie Medcalf and the famous Bruce Willis. 
that I have no idea about. What What do you hear on all that chat? Is there any advance? I haven't wording? heard anything, but I... she's a remarkable actress. Maybe some of our listeners don't know. She started with Steppenwolf Theater when that group began in the the 70s, right out of college. And we watched her become a magnificent actress over years and years and years. And she's wildly impressive. So I think she will bring a lot to that role. Uh, Poor Bruce Willis. I mean, he has to spend the entire... um, he spends the entire show in bed, right? Because Pretty much. She's, has, hasn't she broken his legs? She does eventually. She eventually at some, at some point during it, but he does have he does have sort of shattered legs and a broken back, and yes, it's pretty much on your back. Yeah, I don't time. always know the thinking of this. I saw the movie Misery once. I appreciated it. I don't need to see that again, mm. do I? Do mm. I need to spend nearly $200 to see that on stage? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, and I'm not a big fan of Bruce Willis. Hmm. Well, then uh, you're not going. I'm probably not going, <laughs> nor am I going. And with the stuff that Al Pacino does with his hair now, he's this old man wearing lots of, what do you call that, pomade you put in your hair and spiking your hair up. Perhaps that's why the show is called China Doll. <laughs> hair like a doll. Yeah. Speaking of Steppenwolf, as you just mentioned, I'm going to move on to a couple of a few of the Booth One experiences we've oh had God. this week. We've, we've buried our lead. I'm exhausted. We've, we've had such an exciting week that's that's almost it's almost breathtaking. We have in uh, its uniqueness and Booth Oneness. My wife and I had the great, great privilege and good fortune of attending what, in effect, was the final dress rehearsal before previews, paid previews start. Uh, at the the Steppenwolf Theater of their new production of John Steinbeck's East of Eden, adapted by ensemble member Frank Galati, uh, directed by uh, ensemble member Terry Kinney, starring several other members of the ensemble. A small cast, maybe uh, eight, maybe nine uh, actors in the cast, uh, including uh, our friend and wonderful, wonderful actor named Dan Waller. So we were able to go see that. It was called, we were invited to what's called Vet Night. It's something that Gary Sinise, founding member, along with Terry Kinney and and Jeff Perry, founding member of Steppenwolf, created some years ago uh, after... Uh, Gary became much, much more involved with veterans, uh, American veterans. He now sponsors and uh, pays for and arranges a group of veterans to show up at the final dress rehearsal of every show that is done at Steppenwolf. How we got there, I'm not exactly sure. We are, have a friend of a friend who was invited, and certainly there's always some seats available, and uh, Gary Sinise was nice enough to put us on the list for that evening. So we got to see the final dress rehearsal. And that, my of, friends, is a Booth One experience. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was really, really, really fun, and something that's... So interesting. I'd never been to one of these vet nights. My my wife had been to them in the past, but I'd never been to one. But something so very interesting is that many of the vets talk back to the actors <laughs> during the show. No. Yes. Or they speak out loud what they're feeling. You um, tell her, girl. Exactly. Stuff like that. <laughs> stuff like that. Don't yeah, open that door. <laughs> at one point, at one point, one of the characters just very quietly goes over to a drawer and pulls out a pistol and someone just said, she's got a gun. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was great. It was really thrilling. Uh, they didn't stop at all, for, even for a dress rehearsal. And I know that they had not fully teched and fully staged the last, say, 10 minutes of the of the show. So the actors were kind of stumbling through it just to get through the process. And it was very emotional and a lot of a lot of catharsis happens in the last 10 minutes of, of, of the show. But it was really, really fun and really, really great to be at. I can't wait to see what they do with the show. Uh, obviously, as a final dress rehearsal before they start previews, where they really begin to work on it, because then they're getting real audience feedback every night. Uh, there'll be considerable changes right. and, and adaptations. We had another Booth One-like experience. Uh, you and I, and again, my wife, uh, went to the circus. Yes. We went to see Cirque du Soleil's Curios, Cabinet of Curiosities, out here under a big tent in the parking lot of the United Center. Where did we sit, Roscoe? We sat in the front row. <laughs> front row center. Front row center, because life is an endless booth one experience it for is. you and I. It is. I almost, caught, I almost caught one of the falling acrobats. Remember and that? I, yes, and I almost got caught in the head by a falling You hook. almost got whacked in the head, by a, in the head. by a big a big handle on the big net. So what was your uh, what was your experience there, Roscoe? Cirque du Soleil is always thrilling, and I'm not sure how to critique the show or even describe it. It's, it's like nothing else I've ever seen. It's spectacle, it's music... Um, you know, a, unbelievable original music score, dialogue, most of which is um, undecipherable. I'm not sure that w sometimes we pick out a few words and sometimes they seem to be speaking in a foreign language. Yeah, very interesting. And yeah. I'm not sure when it's set or what's really happening. Sort of odd, you know, late 19th century style, H.G. Wells, kind of wacky, yeah. sometimes Alice in Wonderlandy. But you have to admit, they, they kept to whatever style that was. Right. How you describe it is, is, is difficult, but the style was played well throughout. Right. All of the acts were dressed in costumes that were very much of the style, no matter what kind of act they were doing, juggling or right. balancing on lucite balls mm -hmm. or right. flying through the air like he-men. The opening segment, the one of the characters has a, it's part of a bathosphere. Like a big submarine, and it looked that it was made with metal and it was a porthole, and then he opened it up. And out, out of the porthole emerges a miniature person, a very small woman. And I, I looked this up to get the, the word choices correct. This was the, one of the smallest people I've ever seen in my life. And according to Wikipedia, the correct way to refer to this person is as a short person. So she's a normally proportioned person, but just tiny. And would you imagine she less than four feet tall? Oh, oh. Three feet tall? Less than four feet tall. And she was a perfectly beautifully proportioned woman. In fact, she looked like if you, if you took... Angela Lansbury and put her in the dryer. Yeah. She, she, she face-wise, features-wise, everything about this wonderful, wonderful performer was absolutely exacting. And she had beautiful costumes, she yeah. had beautiful clothes on, and she did wonderful things. She had no real act of her own. Uh, she was really there as sort of support act, kind of introducing things, not by words, but maybe just bringing props or pieces on. 
she was fascinating. She was by far the most eye-appealing thing right. in the entire in the entire show. I I, I absolutely adored right. her and would very much like to be her friend. Yes, <laughs> we should have had her on the show. Cirque du Soleil is always thrilling, and and people have told me that they like always like to hear about our experience. Those what who was at the show? What was the show like? You know, it's sort of an ordeal to get to this tent at the United Center in the middle of. You also have to mention that within the last week in Chicago, we've had about 24 feet of rain. So it's been the rainiest season in the history of Chicago. We went to a 4.30 matinee because of the rain and the heat in, in this fairly late. And in, in, we're at the very last days of summer officially. We're well into September. <laughs> you said, I, I feel like I'm going to see a matinee in a tropical rainforest in Brazil. <laughs> and what was thrilling is, is uh, people dressed up. You know, you had a lot of women who were uh, beautifully put together as if they were going to the opera. One, one example is there's an interesting bicycle on stage. You know, one, early in the show, one of the acrobats walks out on stage, gets on the bicycle, starts pedaling, and the bicycle becomes airbound and goes up and up and up in the air. And then she dismounts and does a series of Contortions. Contortions hanging. Hanging things. Hanging from the bicycle, like by her fingernails at one point. Each one more interesting than the next, yeah. and each one more harrowing than the next. Harrowing. And she's, she's what, 60 feet up in the air? She's several stories up in the air, and there is no net. You know, one point she's up... The, she, She's, she gets on the bicycle upside down and begins pedaling. Begins pedaling, yeah, that was unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they were incredibly, incredibly talented people, as they always are. We had a really fun experience. And we sat in the front row. And we sat and in was, the front there row. There were people inches from our face at, at many times, and uh, I could not have felt more booth one I know. I, you could see, we're so close, we could see the, the pores on their faces. Our final funny. booth one experience this week, and I think this was just last night. Was it last night? It was last night. Also something that's been making the uh, press uh, notices as something not to be missed this season in terms of, well, certainly in terms of Chicago theater, besides East of Eden uh, at this point, um, a, a very interesting and very funny play at the North Light Theater called Funny Man. And what's so unique about this production is that it stars George Went of Norm Cheers fame, and Tim Kazarinski of Saturday Night Live fame. Um, we were lucky and fortunate enough to be invited to the opening night performance. <laughs> For the world premiere. <laughs> of Funny Man. Critics were in the audience. Tim Evans, uh, who's the managing director there, um, executive director, I should say, he invited us uh, to opening night. He's, uh, he's a good friend, and we were lucky enough to go, and we had splendid seats. What did you think of the show, Roscoe? I think the important point of the show is is George Went is a beloved American actor and comedian. Uh, Cheers has been off the air for 22 years. He's remained active in, in other TV appearances and stage. I think this is probably the first time he has carried a show, and this is this is a role that's uh, you know Willie Lomanesque in its size and stature, and he gave a hell of a performance. I thought it's a big role and he's a big guy. And it's loosely based on the life of 
Bert Lahr. The late life of the, Bert Lahr. The late life of Bert Lahr. In, late in life, Bert Lahr, who was a beloved vaudevillian and Broadway actor who's, who's claimed everyone in America knows who Bert Lahr is because he played the Cowardly Lion in The Wizard of Oz. 20 years later, he surprises everyone by appearing in the original American production of Waiting for Godot. And in Funny Man, uh, George Went plays a character based on Bert Lahr, uh, also uh, an amalgam of uh, other kind of stars. Like uh, Buster Keaton. Like Buster Keaton, indeed. And uh, as opposed to him having become a star as the cowardly lion in Wizard of Oz, he is, his claim to fame is he was a star as the Mad Hatter in a film production of Alice in Wonderland. Well, I, I thought George was terrific. We had a wonderful time. Uh, it was very entertaining, some very funny stuff going on. And I will say, without fear of criticism, that George Went surprised me. I did not quite know what to expect from him. How many times have we ever seen him on stage? It was sort of like going to see Bert Lahr do Wait yeah. for Godot. And he uh, comported himself beautifully. Uh, I thought he had some wonderful moments understood the character and the play and the moments that needed to be hit. It was, it was beautifully directed, and uh, he, was, he was terrific. And, and the kudos I would give to him as an actor is there's a confrontation that we expect is going to come in the show. And boy, when that big scene finally arrived, could you feel every, the theater, you could have heard a pin drop. Mm. And I could sense everyone in, their the, in, in the theater leaning forward because mm. they didn't want to miss a word, a moment of what was happening or what he said. And there was another, this is why theater is so thrilling. When you sense that an actor is responding to the audience, George Went is talking and explaining something and the audience is, is hushed and one person coughs and George Went ups his volume in response to him thinking, I don't want to miss, I don't want anyone in the audience to miss a line of what I'm saying yeah. because we're getting to the whole point of the show. Yeah. So he, he amps up his performance in response to something that's just happened in the audience. And that's something that only happens in live theater and why live theater is so thrilling. But without question. Uh, and, and we had yet again a booth one experience after the show. There was a reception. We spoke with the director. We spoke with George Went. Uh, I introduced myself to the playwright. We spoke to Tim Evans a bit. Uh, we spoke to uh, Joyce Piven, who was there. We really need to explain to who Joyce Piven is. She was one of the people who founded the Compass Players in the 1950s, which became Second City. So she was at the very beginning of this whole improv movement, which is now legendary in Chicago. But she was she was friends and contemporaries and helped founded the Compass Players with Mike Nichols and Elaine May and Paul Sills, Barbara Harris. And, and here she is, and she's still teaching, and she's still doing theater, and she's showing up at opening nights. So among all of those people, these were the Booth One experiences we had last night. <laughs> Booth One in Skokie. I need to mention something here, a piece of business. Our good friend Billy Lawless, who I've mentioned before on the shows, the owner, operator, uh, proprietor of several restaurants in Chicago, including a Kanto, has uh, generously offered us another gift card for one of his other fine establishments, The Gage. Again, I mentioned this on a previous broadcast. The Gage is located right in downtown Chicago at 24 South Michigan Avenue, right there uh, across from the Crown Fountain in the heart of everything. The Gage 
stages, a lively, always kind of hopping mix of locals and tourists. It's a more casual option to a canto, which is next door, which we've given a gift certificate to already in the past. And it offers these savory delights like Guinness battered fish and chips. One of my favorite things. I can hear I can, I can, I can hear you making a yummy noise. Yummy. There, and Scotch egg. Have you ever had a Scotch egg? I asked this about I asked this of Kurt Elling the other day. I saw some Scotch eggs in that photograph of Yeah, a hard boiled egg wrapped in sausage, coated in egg and breadcrumbs, and then deep fried. And then you slice into it. Like I, 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 that, that's, that sounds like my dream food. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> Could we have them drive some up to Evanston right now? There's a great beer selection. There's generous wine pourers, I'll say, and big cozy boots for upfront seating, which is slightly away from the action in the really fun bar. To win this uh, $100 gift card from Billy Lawless and our friends at The Gage, just go to our website at, and we mentioned this earlier, www.booth-one.com. Sign up for our mailing list. Become an A-lister fan of Booth One, and we'll be drawing for the winner of the gift card on Monday, uh, October 19th, or thereabouts. It may be a day or so later than that, but right around the 19th. Uh, so get on our site, sign up soon, and good luck in our drawing. It's, um, it's, it's a wonderful place uh, to go, a great, great food and really a fun atmosphere. So the winner will have a Booth One experience at the Gage. Indeed. I love that. And if they'd like us to join them to enhance their Booth One experience, That'll be, I think we'd be happy to do that. Should, would we be happy to do that for free, or should we, do we come at a price? Well, I think, I think the price would be they have to buy you a scotch egg. I think, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're nearing uh, sort of the point in our program for our Kiss of Death segment. It's always your favorite segment, Gary. One of my favorite segments. Uh, I try. I try to be uh, entertaining oh, about yeah. it. Yeah, you get a little slobbery these days, though, about that keys to the Carly segment. A little slobbery. Yeah, I'll try to pull back a little bit. No, no, that. no. I think that's. I, I think this used to be your favorite segment, but now it's keys to the Carly for. As yeah, long as, she won't last. That. Yeah, she's she not won't last, last long enough. Whereas death. Someone will always die. <laughs> we can always, always count die. on death. This is from a few weeks ago. Dean Jones. Oh yes. Actor and singer, he made his name in a string of popular Disney films in the 60s and 70s, notably as a race car driver in The Love, Love Bug. Bug. I love those movies. The Love Bug franchise movies. He died on Tuesday in Los Angeles. He was 84. He died on September 1st. Uh, precocious, he was known as, and multi-talented as a youth. The boyishly handsome Mr. Jones began his career as a teenage radio host and performer in amateur musical reviews. I didn't know that. He became a stage actor, and he and Jane Fonda made their Broadway debuts together. But it was not until the mid-1960s that he found his niche as the affable, hapless, clean-cut everyman in a series of genial family comedies Produced by the Walt Disney Company, beginning in 1965 with That Darn Cat. He was in a lot of movies where there were non-human objects that he had to play off of. And he was an absolute master at this. Along with the child star Haley Mills, Mr. Jones became the face of Disney's film brand. Yeah, Haley Mills. I loved Haley Mills I did as too. a child. Oh, who did not? Mr. Jones' best-known role was probably the race car driver Jim Douglas in The Love Bug, which we mentioned in 1968's uh, Disney movie uh, about a Volkswagen Beetle with a mind of its own. 
Mr. Jones, he made an unusual impression on the theater world in the 1970 Broadway production of Stephen Sondheim's Company, not long after the opening night of the musical in which he played the central role of the 35-year-old bachelor Robert, or Robbie, or Bobby, however you want to call him, an object of either envy or concern for a circle of married friends. He quit the production, citing stress and depression related to the recent collapse of his own marriage. And soon uh, after, he became a born-again Christian. Now, you mentioned uh, this to me the other day as we were having a conversation about Dean Jones and his born-again Christian career after his stage and, and film career had kind of ended. And in his 1982 autobiography, wrote of Company, quote, it was a clever, bright show on the surface, but its underlying message declared that marriage was at best a vapid compromise, insoluble and finally destructive. And although he was replaced by Larry Kurt who uh, did the show to great, great acclaim, uh, Mr. Jones agreed to record the original cast album, leaving him indelibly associated with the show, which won the 71 Tony Award for Best Musical. I subsequently met Larry Kurt personally and worked with him when I was uh, uh, on uh, stage managing on Broadway. I did a show called Legs Diamond. Was he in that? Which has become rather well-known in some theatrical circles. Uh, Legs Diamond was a Peter Allen musical, uh, which he wrote music and lyrics for and starred in. Peter was... Uh, he wasn't always well during the process, and vocally, it was very hard for him to sustain eight shows a week. At some point through in the run, even though it didn't run for very long, at some point in the run, he really did lose his voice quite dramatically. And his understudy had to go on. And who did they get for the understudy? Larry Kurt, of course. Wow. Now, Larry Kurt goes out there and brings so many other different kinds of nuances and performance techniques to the role and to the show itself that it, it, it bore virtually no resemblance to a Peter Allen performance. I'm not knocking Peter. Uh, he was a wonderful, generous, uh, fantastic human being, great to be around. Uh, it was his show from the beginning. It was his idea. It was his m music and lyrics. Um, it was Harvey Firestein's book, um, but there was something just thrilling about watching from the wings Larry Kurt take on a role and make it his own and do something different with it. He wasn't just trying to imitate a Peter Allen. He was really being the Broadway performer that he was. So that's my, wow. Larry, that's my Larry Kurt story. That's a great and I story. Was, I, I, I was... I was teary-eyed the first night he went on. Uh, we were all terrified, of course, because he hadn't really rehearsed all that much, but he, he's, a, he's a hoofer. <laughs> he, was a, he was an absolute rock. Uh, Dean Carroll Jones, isn't that funny? His middle name was Carroll. Uh, was born in Decatur, Alabama. In 1931, he briefly hosted his own radio show called Dean Jones Sings while attending Riverside High School in Decatur, then studied music and acting for a year at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. Before entering uh, the Navy, he posted in San Diego, served in special services, mounting variety shows for, for other sailors. And that was, if, <laughs> I, I often feel that if you had joined the, the, the Navy, that's exactly what you'd be doing. Yes. <laughs> Wearing a coconut shell brassiere. It was there that he, he met uh, May Inez Entwistle, Miss San Diego of 1953, uh, who became his first wife. 
uh, on his return to civilian life in 54, he got a job at the Birdcage Theater at the Knott's Berry Farm. And he was discovered there by songwriters, get this, songwriters Vernon Duke and Frank Lesser. Wow. Discovered him at Knott's Berry Farm, who recommended him to the MGM chief Dory Sherry at the time, who signed him to a studio contract. Um, his first credited film was in 1956, a drama called Those Wilder Years, which starred James Cagney and Barbara Stanwyck. And he was in only one scene. He followed that with appearances in the 1957 Elvis Presley vehicle, Jailhouse Rock. And he made his Broadway debut in February 1960 in an adaptation of Christopher Davis's novel, There Was a Little Girl. Ever hear of this play? No. I've never heard of this play either. And Jane Fonda was in There Was a Little Girl? Ms. Fonda was his co-star. Wow. Yeah. That, uh, that November, Mr. Jones appeared with Gig Young and Sandra Church in the Broadway farce Under the Yum Yum Tree. Ugh. Uh, and he went on to per- to appear in the 1963 film version with Jack Lemmon and Carol Lindley. Can, can I just digress here for a moment? It, this show is all about digressions. I hate Carol Lindley. I've yeah. always hated Carol She's Lindley. She's not very talented. Whoever thought she could act? I don't know. Is she in the Poseidon Adventure and sings There's Got to Be a Morning After? She doesn't... See, well, yes. She lip syncs it. Yeah. Exactly. Do you know that she posed uh, for Playboy in 1965 as well? No. Yeah. Before oh. she became a, a really big star. And here, here's something that's funny. Dean Jones' real name was Dean Carol Jones. Carol Lindley's real name was Carol Ann Jones. Wow. Wowza! Wowza! <laughs> Wowza! In 1973, Mr. Jones married the actress Laurie Patrick, and later that year, he had what he called a religious awakening. It came after a night of drinking and reckless stunt driving at a construction site in which he and a passenger could have been killed. His faith would influence many of his later career choices um, in 1978. He played the jailed Watergate conspirator Charles Coulson. We mentioned Charles Coulson on a show just recently. Also a born-again Christian in the feature film Born Again. In 1986, he starred uh, in Into the Light, a short-lived Broadway musical about the Shroud of Turin. (laughs) Into the Light. I'd love to get a copy of that album. Indeed, as well as a a one-man play. St. John in Exile. Uh, he also continued to appear occasionally in Hollywood films, including Other People's Money, Beethoven, and the 1994 adap- adaptation of Tom Clancy's novel Clear and Present Danger. In 93, he returned to New York for a two-day company revival at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. That was quite a coup to get him to show up for that. Yeah, I, I think. They think. Were, I think they were thrilled that he did, and I, I think people were surprised that he did, too, because he'd sort of given all of that up. Recently, Mr. Jones had mostly confined his work to Christian-themed straight-to-video films. Dean Jones, star of Disney movies, dies at 84. Wow. Let me do a couple of circlebacks to some things that we've talked about. The thing that made us laugh loudest at Cirque du Soleil was the fact that two of the female acrobats were named Rita and Cheetah. <laughs> and you and I screamed with laughter. And they, and, were, and they were invisible. And we were the only people in the, in the, the theater that got that joke. Cheetah and Rita. <laughs> Cheetah and Rita. <laughs> they're, they're invisible, invisible trapeze yes. artists. And my favorite, you know, we've talked about uh, Dean Jones coming back to do the company revival when amazingly, you know, in 1993, everyone was still alive who'd been in the original production and they all came back, except poor Susan Browning, who sang the song, Where You Go in Barcelona. 
oh, don't get up. Yeah, the, the stewardess. The stewardess. Susan Browning had, had gained some weight in the intervening years, as, as often happens. Elaine Stritch, the fabulous curmudgeon, was also in company. She came back to do the remount of the show. And when poor Susan Browning got up to sing, where you going, Barcelona? Oh, don't get up. Dean Jones sang, where you going? And Elaine Stritch said, Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't get up. <laughs> As always, it's been a pleasure. And Roscoe, welcome to the newly minted Booth One. You've been listening to Booth One. Remember, everyone, try to find our podcast at www.booth-one.com. We will see you, or you'll hear us, next time on a Booth One podcast. Take care.